What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. In this episode, I'm talking with Donovan Sanchez. Donovan is a certified financial planner and the founder of Skyview Financial Planning, a firm providing financial planning for physicians who believe in independent advice for a fair price. Today, we're talking all about financial advisors' conflicts of interest and how they can cause you harm. Donovan and I both started our careers as financial advisors at Northwestern Mutual, which happens to be known for having more than their fair share of conflicts. We cover many of these major conflicts people should know about, but often don't, and how they can negatively affect the advice you receive, especially when you're unaware of them and when your advisor isn't doing anything to mitigate them. We discuss how the big financial product manufacturers have particularly cumbersome conflicts that its advisors are forced to deal with, and we talk about a new disclosure requirement for certified financial planners and how it's a good step, but not enough. We also get into how you can sort through all this confusion and find a quality advisor. So if you're working with a financial advisor or are considering hiring one in the future, you definitely need to understand this stuff. Today, we're going to peel back the curtain for you. Donovan, what's up, man? Thanks for hanging out with us today. Daniel, it's uh, really good to be here. I appreciate that opportunity to chat. Awesome. So I want to talk about uh, financial advisors today and and some of the conflicts of interest that, that we face in our industry before we get into the details of that, I was curious if you could kind of break down for us, what are the different types of financial advisors as far as like compensation structures and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's a good question. The difficulty that a lot of your listeners are going to face is the fact that the title financial advisor can pretty much apply to mostly anybody that's working in the financial services industry to some extent. And so, you know, when you're asking what are the types of financial advisors? I think that the best way to answer that question is is to really look at a compensation model and to understand how you're paying for the services that you're receiving. And I, I, I think that you'd probably agree that you can really break down compensation to kind of three main categories. And the first category would be a commission relationship. In other words, when I say a commission relationship, what I really mean is that you are... Uh, compensating your financial advisor through commissions that they are earning based on the sale of of an insurance product or an investment product. There's some sort of product transaction that's happening and and that's how your advisors are earning a living. So that's really the first kind of broad model. Uh, the second compensation structure would be one in which actually maybe it's helpful just to to not talk about the hybrid model and just talk about the other extreme, which is a fee only model. Under a fee-only model, there is absolutely no product sale. There is no commission because there aren't any product sales. And so the advice, uh, the service that you're receiving from your financial advisor is the advice they're providing is what you are paying for. So you give your advisor a fee. And there's a lot of different ways that you might do this. It could be an hourly fee. It could be a flat annual retainer. It could be tied to assets under management. But the point is, in some way, you are, you are paying for the advice through a fee. Now, there's this middle ground too, um, which unfortunately is, is known as fee-based, which isn't super helpful. Yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a good question. Without some experience in the industry, it would be really hard as a consumer to understand. 
which I think is the point while we're having this conversation. And this, and this is the majority of people, right? This this kind of hybrid category. Yeah, it would be really interesting to look at the numbers. Could be. I suspect there's a whole lot of commissioned advisors. Oh, commission only. No, but I, I think you're probably right. I haven't seen I haven't seen the numbers, but I suspect that you're probably right. It probably is the middle ground commission only because uh, under fee based fee based you can earn commissions. Financial advisors earn commissions based off the sale of product, but they can also charge you fees. And so these could be like one-time financial planning fees, or they could be an asset under management fee or something like that. But the point is that the fee-based model uh, is is allowing for commissions as well as fees to be charged. And so I think you're probably right. Probably most advisors are in that in-between stage, but you know. I haven't seen the numbers to be sure, but I bet you're probably right about that. That's confusing. Super confusing. And we're in the industry. I'm like, I can't imagine as a consumer trying to sort through that. I think that's part of the challenge of what we're talking about is, so the gist of it is there's a lot of different ways advisors get paid. And so I think we're talking about, you know, the conflicts. And so if you were to look at kind of all the different categories of advisors, Maybe let's start with the most conflicted arrangement. So the most conflicts of interest, what would you kind of describe as that looking like? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll put it this way. So, and maybe it's helpful for me to share from experience. Like your listeners should know that I started out in the industry with a national insurance company, Northwestern Mutual to be specific, that also does some financial planning work now. And as a new financial representative, uh, which is the title that I came into the industry with. It didn't take long for me to become a, you know, quote, financial advisor. But the vast majority of my compensation, certainly, certainly early on, 100% of my compensation was from commission. And so I was a, that commission advisor. A little bit later on in my, in my time with, with, uh, Northwestern Mutual, uh, I did earn some fees, uh, for service. But for all intents and purposes, it was almost entirely commissions. Mm-hmm. And the, the challenge with that is that, um, you know, I'm a father of four, happily married. And, uh, at the time, I think I had, I had three kids. The, the challenge uh, with a commission model is that if, as a financial advisor, if I am unable to sell something, then I am unable to provide for my family. Yeah. You got a lot of mouths to feed. Correct. And, and, you know, even if I was just a single guy, let's just say that I was a single guy fresh out of college or something, you know, I still want to earn a living and make, make a way for myself. And so under a commission model, it it can be very difficult, uh, to provide advice that is completely in your, the client's best interest. Because at the end of the day, somewhere at some time, I need to make a sale. There has to be something, there has to be some sort of transaction that's going to end up providing me with some money. And so on the other end of the table as a client, you know, you got to be aware of that. Um, and so I would, I would view in my opinion, that would be the, the arrangement that is most conflicted. Yeah. And the, when you're completely relying on commissions as an advisor. Especially, especially. But, you know, the, the next arrangement that I think does reduce potentially some of the conflicts is that fee-based model. Potentially, I mean, this really just depends on uh, how much of that advisor's revenue is he earning from fees? 
if he's under the fee-based model where he's earning fees and commissions. Because I think especially young financial advisors in that model, uh, there's a possibility that they're still earning a lot of commissions. Like that's kind of one of their primary sources of income. I suspect that over time, as they increase revenue from, let's say, investments under management, then you know their need to sell uh, decreases because they've got these somewhat more passive income streams. But it doesn't remove it doesn't remove the conflict from the table, right, Daniel? It's it's still there. There's still product. There's still a a desire and an incentive, if you will, to sell a product, in particular ones that will earn you high commissions, which are typically the ones, and then in some in some cases they're the ones that are the are worse for people. I th- yeah, I mean, I think the way that I th- I, I think the, the way that I would look at it certainly is that if we talk specifically about insurance products that we, I think you and I regularly see young physicians with a large whole life insurance policy yep, or a large permanent life insurance policy. I actually just started working with an individual who has a whole life insurance policy that he's paying $22,000 a year into. Mm-hmm. And he's a young guy, 35 years old. And from a, a best interest, what, what is in the best interest for him as an individual, it's hard for me to come to the conclusion that it was in his best interest to purchase a whole life insurance policy. And so I think that's the real challenge that we're facing in our industry is that these these financial incentives, which are powerful, that we respond to as 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 people, I have in my experience, they will guide the type of relationship that you're going to have with your financial advisor, which is why it's mm-hmm. so important for you to understand how your financial advisor is getting paid. Yeah, I was so I have a similar background. I started at Northwestern Mutual and worked there for quite a bit longer than Donovan, and I kind of got into more of the uh, fee stuff. But um, my challenge early on was I didn't even know the conflicts. I didn't understand uh, when I was commission only. I didn't really get it at all. I was a 22 year old and had I was just ignorant. So I kind of just was going through blindly and and uh, thought I was doing good work and whatnot. And then, but the incentives are like you're describing are very impactful. And if you're a human, you're going to be affected by influences. So the commission only model, or I guess anything deriving or uh, involving commission at the end of the day, um, I think the challenge or the the problem is really that's a sales engagement, right? So if we were to kind of strip it out at its core, it's really like you're working with a salesperson and an advisor. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Let me make a, let me make a comment on what you were mentioning earlier about kind of being oblivious to how the system operated. I was a little bit older than you when I transitioned to financial services. I graduated from Brigham Young University with a teaching degree and I, I taught high school for a few years and I was like, Hey, maybe I should, Check out some other options. I love teaching, by the way, and I have tremendous respect for uh, teachers, in particular high school teachers. It's a tough gig, though, as as I think many people recognize. And so, you know, I, I had virtually no experience. In fact, no experience at all in in financial planning whatsoever. My experience consisted of listening to Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover and uh, being like, "Sweet, this is great," and you know, following the baby steps and and eventually you know, talking to our financial advisor 
who's also a commission salesman and saying, Hey, I think this would be fun. Can I do it too? And he was like, yeah, sure. Here's a few companies. And, and that's how I landed my job. You know, you're, it's, it's worth your, uh, your, your listeners realizing that oftentimes, uh, when a financial advisor is paid on commission, it often means that a, a, a lot of their training is actually in sales. Hence the salesperson role. Yeah, exactly what you're saying about, you know, this sometimes dual sales slash advisor, these two hats that they, you know, somehow balance between or, you know, put on takeoff. My training consisted a whole lot of sales and it was really frustrating to, because I think most people, even if they are joining a company that's, you know, paying primarily commissions or only commissions, they, they may feel as I did that, you know, I was going to be a financial advisor. And so there'd be some training that would come into that. I happen to have a good manager at Northwestern Mutual who did emphasize teaching us how to be financial, you know, do financial planning. But there was just the bulk of the, the, the focus overall and the you know, rewards and, uh, you know, and, and how you were recognized for achievements was, mm-hmm. you know, based on product sales, new clients, instead of like, you know, a, a holistic plan. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, it's gotta be, that's what it is. That's, it's a, that's part of the issue is a product distribution company, a manufacturer of products is employing people to s- distribute its products or sell its products. And so naturally they're going to put bulk, the bulk of their efforts and if they're going to teach them anything. It's going to be how to sell them better. Wouldn't that be great if, you know, people as they're researching companies that they were going to partner with, if they just did a quick search and looked into if the company, if the firm that is employing their advisor sells product, you know, that's, that's huge. If they just look into and see if, if there's any sort of proprietary product, people should, people should be aware that there's, there's a good chance that the advisor they work with is, is going to be commissioned to sell that. They're a, a means of distribution. And, um, I, you know, as we're talking, that creates some challenges, but what, what consumers out there are aware of that as they're, getting a phone call from someone saying that, you know, Hey, I I worked with your buddy, Bill, and he said that I should reach out. And, uh, you know, I, how many people are going to think about that? I think probably very few, if any at all. That's the other thing might be helpful to point out. Okay. So Donovan and I, I think have a similar marketing approach now. Uh, I would think it's relatively, I guess, put out good information and education to help people like this podcast to help people understand how we do things and give them good content that they would would need either way. And, and then people will come to us eventually, you know, seek out our services and that kind of thing. Uh, completely opposite marketing approach in more of the commission world is it's very proactive and aggressive. So you are going to hear from the advisor first. Typically you're not reaching out the advisor, the advisors reach out to you. It's typically like I worked with your buddy so-and-so and he said, you're a good guy. And, and I ought to talk to you and you, you might benefit from working with me. I could, <laughs> I got my old language still down, but so, you know, you're going to get elicited. So that, but that, when that is happening, that kind of is the first hint that it's probably a, a sales organization as opposed to an advice organization. Right. Yeah. So, so Daniel and I had this like little smile that we exchanged as he was going through the language that he was using <laughs> because, because, you know, one of the things that was so apparent, when I was working as a commissioned uh, financial advisor was that the focus was heavy on the language to use, you know, this 
quote unquote right language to use when working with people, people, whether it was to schedule a meeting or if it was to offer the particular product, I, I, I had way more language training than in, fair to say than like financial planning training. And the key point about the language, I mean, that's, you could argue that's a good way to market your business, but I think it became an issue from an advice quality standpoint when if you have language that's the same for every single person, that in itself is a problem uh, because not everybody's the same. And, you know, you, that that's a sign that you're, you know, giving conflicted advice. When you made a good point earlier also about just that you're probably, you know, if you hear from the financial advisor first, not universally, you know, there's plenty of fee-only advisors that are also building businesses and, and reaching out to people. But I think it's probably fair to say that, you know, a lot of the time or maybe even a majority of the time, if a financial advisor reaches out to you, there's there's a reasonable chance that there's a product that they would like to sell that can earn them a commission. And, and again, if we if we it's pretty logical, right? If I only get paid if I sell something, then I have to have a lot of people coming through the door to sell to. And so I have to become very good, very adept at calling people, scheduling meetings, but also at requesting my clients or even people that I meet with to provide referrals to me. And so, you know, if, if, if you're listening to this and, and your financial advisor has kind of sat you down at the end of the meeting and said, Hey, you know, Jim, I really appreciate last time you introducing me to such and such person. Who else can you think of that maybe I should be reaching out to that might benefit from these services? You know, that's, that was always uncomfortable. I'm, Daniel, I, I don't know if there's a human being that doesn't feel uncomfortable asking, stand for asking for referrals. Yeah, but I'm sure on the other end for the the client or the prospective client, it was just painful. But, you know, if you're exploring advisors and that's one of the things that they're doing, I would actually say that that's kind of a red flag as, you know, why do they, why are they seeking to reach out to all of my friends and family right now? It could be because they have to have sales volume in, in order to accomplish their goals. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's definitely a, another kind of red flag, I would say. And that, and that, um, I could see that happening as well. And so somebody that's really marketing their business, I really am trying to think of someone in our kind of fee only world that does it that way. And I, I really can't think of anybody that asks for referrals and is not aggressive with reaching out to people. It's just, I think when you turn that kind of drive to get volume of new business off, so let's talk about volume a little bit. How many did you, so when I was leaving Northwestern, um, I had, that was one of the challenges I was running into. I was probably up to like 400 or something clients. And I'm like, I can't possibly meet with all these people. And, and I still needed new business every year. And so, yeah, I don't know what, what your experience was like. With, well, with that. you were probably way more of a successful you know, in terms of like number of clients and how many people you were able to bring on than I was. I don't think I was a particularly uh, good. I was there a while too. Yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. I don't remember exactly how many clients I had, but what I do remember, if my memory serves me correctly, my manager had like over a thousand, you know, clients. Uh, understanding that like the someone becomes a client once you sell them something, so they're they're a client of yours. So obviously. There's, 
I, I don't think that my manager was at all trying to reach out to all of these people. I'm sure that he had determined who were the ones that he wanted to continue working with because they were, you know, the most profitable per se, right? If we look at it that way, you know, this gets to a different question. The question of how many people can a financial advisor work with? And my opinion, I'd love to hear yours too, but my opinion is that you get to about a hundred clients and, you know, maybe 120 and that client is getting pretty stretched um, in terms of their capacity to serve those people really well. I mean, think about your own situation, how complicated your life is, your, you know, the changing dynamics of your household, new kids and, you know, different opportunities, job changes, and imagine a financial advisor with 500 clients. How in the world is that advisor going to have the time to understand your details and be able to plan for you? And so I think about I think about 100 is probably the the number. But yeah, I think, think that's a good number. I would say 50 to 150 and it's really depending on the, you know, complexity of the clients and but I think that's per head. So, you know, if you have yeah, you know, per CFP or, or, or whatnot. But so if you're, you know, maybe if your advisor has a thousand people they're working with, maybe that's why you're not getting much service. And I think it is, um, you know, a, that'd be a great question I'd be asking is, you know, how many active clients do you have? At what point do you cap out or whatever? And at that point, what do you do differently? So the, the, the industry has changed a little bit. We, we talked about the CFP disclosure a minute ago before before we got started on the podcast, and I'm curious uh, if if you wrote an article specifically about it. So if you could kind of break down what what has happened that's 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 changed recently regarding that. Yeah. So as a certified financial planner, a financial advisor needs to act as a fiduciary, meaning put the client's best interests at all times. And so it's not a matter of uh, you know what you were alluding to previously about being able to jump from you know, a financial advisor role into a sales role and back and forth. A CFP needs to always uh, put their client's interest first. The article that I wrote uh, appeared in, the, in a blog called The Physician Philosopher, and I think it's titled something like The Code, Conflicts, and Client Interests. Um, I wrote it in response to an interesting article uh, written by Tobias Salinger, with financial planning, so financialplanning.com. Going back to these large companies that are paying their advisors on commission, one of the duties that uh, are required under the new CFP standards um, is that, first of all, again, put your client's interests first, that fiduciary standard, but also that you disclose any material conflicts of interest. And so Tobias Salinger's article in financial planning you know, you can go, you can look up his article and maybe I'll just pull up the name of it. The actual article itself is Northwestern Mutuals, excuse me, Northwestern's CFP disclosures put industries fraught questions in focus. His article is really interesting, but what's even more interesting in my opinion is that he actually links to a, a, a CFP disclosure template um, that Northwestern Mutual Financial Advisors were able to use or not use. Uh, as in order to, I mean, they have to disclose somehow. So whether they use the template or they created something if on their own. If they're a CFP. If they're a CFP. If they're not a CFP. It's interesting. Yeah. It only, this would only apply to those financial advisors that were CFP. It wouldn't, wouldn't apply to those who were not. 
So that's another just side point. It's yeah, that's CFP concerning, isn't it? Standard is a little bit. I mean, I don't know what to think of that. I mean, maybe you should at minimum be working with a CFP. And I think it's a step in the right direction. I I'm so. What do you get with a CFP? You get someone who has a minimum level of training. You get someone that has a minimum level of experience because there's there's a three years of experience requirement, and then you get someone that is supposed to be committing to an ethical standard. And so I think that's a great step in the right direction. But I don't think that it is going to remove bias and conflicts if there's a material conflict, which again, I mean, the interesting about that article is looking at, you know, Northwestern Mutual's, the the disclosure document itself and reading through it, which I, I would invite your your listeners to do read through that and and because in it uh northwestern mutual discloses their material which good kudos to them good for them for going out there and saying hey here's some of the ways that as an as your advisor i would be conflicted in reading through the reading through the document the 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 client or prospective client i think would really give them you know make them pause and and consider whether they want to work with a financial advisor that has to deal with those conflicts because there's yeah. so many there's so many financial advisors that don't that don't have to deal with those conflicts so given the choice between working with a financial advisor who has some pretty significant material conflicts of interest coming from a requirement to sell proprietary products and working with a financial advisor who you are paying fees you are paying them just for their advice there's no transaction that has to happen for them to get paid you remove that conflict you know, I, I think, at least speaking for myself, the 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 choice is easy for me. I think for for most people, it probably is too. Yeah, I I read through the their disclosure requirement, and it, I think it is a it's a honorable thing to reveal all their conflicts, and they've kind of taken True. the the step forward with that. But uh, it does highlight really all the big conflicts, and the list is very long. I mean, you got a ton of stuff on here. You got you know, that NML, the Northwestern Mutual, their product requirements, they have the minimum standards that you must meet in order to continue to be uh, employed. They have like the proprietary requirements where you kind of have to, there's a, there's a higher, uh, you don't have to sell Northwestern products, but you, in some cases, are contractually obligated to put them first. There, There's all kinds of uh, money changing hands between the fund companies and the big corporation itself. They disclose all their, their training and incentives designed to, to recommend proprietary stuff. Um, the products there, you can adjust products and ultimately adjust your compensation. One of the ones I saw people have trouble with the most was whole life insurance is that product itself you can kind of like um design it i mean you can you know uh, adjust how much how it's structured which directly dictates how much you get paid as an advisor and so i don't know about your experience donovan but when i have looked at them as a third party it's i don't think i've ever seen one that's structured to have the minimum commissions on them yeah i don't know if i can speak to that as much as also uh, bring up my concerns though about whole life insurance because right not not long before I left the company I was really starting to struggle with uh, this this idea that there were a ton of people that should have whole life insurance right this is kind of part of your experience when you might if you're at like a 
uh, a company that offers whole life insurance is that there may be this this sense because of the training and the way that people are talking about things that whole life insurance is something that everyone needs to have. And I was really getting to the point where like I was just not convinced. So there were, you know, there there are successful advisors that will sell training. And so I purchased training from an advisor who was like a whole life insurance expert, really just hoping and praying that I was going to be able to see the math behind why people should have whole life insurance. And as you might imagine, you know, what I really had purchased was more sales more language. language. More language, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I do you mind if so I've got the that CFP board Northwestern Mutual Disclosure brochure up. Do you mind if I just read a couple quotes from it? Yeah. It might be, be helpful great. just to so what you were bringing up earlier about, you know, the challenge of uh yeah, quotas, basically. So this comes from the disclosure document, it's page three. Persuade to my, and this is quote, persuade to my Northwestern Mutual contract, my primary insurance product affiliation is with Northwestern Mutual. I primarily recommend, sell, and service Northwestern Mutual insurance products, and I am required to meet annual minimum insurance production requirements established by Northwestern Mutual from time to time. So what does that actually mean? Just kind of break it yeah, down. Yeah, so to, to break it down, nuts and bolts, the advisor here, and again, this is a template, so this isn't necessarily something that an advisor ha- would, you know, they can structure this however they want, um, so long as they're disclosing their conflicts. But, you know, they're saying, essentially, I'm an employee of Northwestern Mutual, and I will primarily be recommending those products because I have to hit, I have to hit this minimum insurance requirement. I actually saw the unfortunate experience too, Daniel. You know, there was an advisor in our office. And I don't know if this was a national thing. I, I don't think it was. I think it was more of a regional office, but he wasn't selling enough. Northwestern Mutual Insurance, and so he was getting fined. He was getting fined. You know, I can't remember how how many years in a row he'd been, you know, fined because he hadn't sold enough. Mm-hmm. And you, you can lose your your health insurance too. Well, I think just lose your contract in general, possibly. I mean, again, I don't yeah. I don't know a whole lot about that, but I, you know, I I just I can't imagine him being able. And he was a good guy, you know. I just it's hard for me to imagine any any advisor who's fearful that he's going to get to the end of the year and owe the company money because he didn't sell enough of their stuff. Yeah. But that was, you know, that was his situation. Yeah. The, that's the thing in my experience is the, the people there are, are good people. The challenges is more of the uh, organization structure and the, really just the conflict that you're dealing with. It's, it's not so much, you know, bad people doing bad things. No, 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 not at all. And I think that's, a, I think that is a, a dangerous thing that sometimes gets out there on, you know, various blogs and things like that. Like, you know, the notion that these financial advisors are evil or bad. I, I just, you know, look in the mirror, just, just you know, it's a human behavior too. and it's a human behavior because of an incentive. Right. It would be like a physician working for a pharmaceutical company, probably. Yeah. Yeah, so that's actually interesting you mentioned that because in the article that I wrote for the physician philosopher, that was actually the comparison that I made was that, hey, you walk into your, you know, your allergies are super bad. You go to your doctor. Your doctor's like, hey, I got you covered, buddy. You know, just take this. And so you're like, okay, great. And you take it. And, uh, you know, it just really wasn't, you know, it had some side effects you just really didn't like. But you know what? It's what the doctor ordered. And then, you know, later on, you're just shocked to hear that, your physician was like brought to the pharmaceutical company's headquarters and brought on stage and given 
you know, a fancy trip to Amelia Island in Florida and, you know, ribbon. a bonus and a ribbon. <laughs> they were recognized. And you're like, wait a second. Was what? What was that advice? Was that advice that was good for me? And then you do a little bit more research and you find out there's a bunch of independent physicians who are like, this drug for your allergies is vastly overprescribed and there's way better things out there that are cheaper and that are going to help your problem. And so you really start wondering like, oh my gosh. Has this happened before? Has this happened before? And was my physician, you know, doing what was best for me or best for them? And what... And whenever there's a product that's being transferred from one hand to the next, it becomes harder. It becomes harder to 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 navigate that question about best interests. Yeah. So, and then the in the CFP disclosure, they talk about. I guess the second part of that requirement is managing those conflicts. Uh, you the first requirement is to disclose all the conflicts, and then the second part is to to manage the conflicts. I thought that was interesting in the at least the Northwestern Mutual's document, how they reason that. And that is a good, I think, a good read as well, because it just shows you how anybody can reason anything, I think. Yes, I agree. And one of the reasons, for example, was I need to earn your referrals. Yeah, which I, where is your interests just, align. Such an in, interesting reasoning for that. It's like, I'm going to act in your best interest, no matter, even though I have all these conflicts of interest, I'm going to, always look out for you first because I need to earn your referrals. Yeah. I, I, you know, you and I would agree that we don't think it's a particularly good reason as a, as a way for managing conflicts and just speaking from experience, you know, being the, you know, the young ish financial advisor trying to make it work where I had to, I had to, I had to sell things to earn money. You know, I consider myself to be a pretty honest guy, you know, like most people, you know, but it was really dang hard to sit across from people who were doing what they needed to do and feel that tug of, I got to sell something. You know, I got to, yeah. I got to, rec- I got to recommend that they convert some of their term insurance into whole life insurance. Yeah. And then you would go down the hallway and ask for advice from another experienced colleague and they're, and they're going to give you some explanation about how it is the best. And then you talk to another person and then they reconfirm that. And I mean, you might even do your homework and it's, it's like all the stuff around you kind of reinforces that decision that you're not sure about. And it tends to push you subconsciously towards selling the product essentially. Well, I think that people do become very good at, at, at justifying their behavior, you know, if they have to. And we see this in a lot of different things. And I don't know if you observed this at your office, but one of the things that really troubled me as I was looking around um, was that there were not that many seasoned advisors, but there were tons of advisors that were getting recruited. And so there was, there was a lot of advisors coming through the door that wouldn't last for very long. And you know there were only a few that, that actually made it, you know, quote unquote, made it. And that was concerning to me. And again, I think... You know, it goes back to this unfortunate, the unfortunate aspect of, of an advisor who's only paid by commission. Mm-hmm. And how many people can go that long without having some sort of stable income stream? And I think it, it just becomes challenging for advisors to, to learn how to become good advisors if they don't have the space and stability to do that. Because, you know, 
I think a lot of them are kind of, they're forced to learn how to sell so they can create stability. And, you know, I think those, the, the orders should certainly be reversed. You should become a really great financial advisor and actually you should remove just the sales part altogether <laughs> would be the ideal. But you got to become a, you got to become a good financial advisor before you're giving advice. And I think most, most people that are entering the world of commission financial advisor, they would like, they would like to become a good financial advisor first and they're initially really discouraged by the fact that they're not really learning how to become a financial advisor, but then they just have to make it work because there they are. So what do you think is the like ideal way to look for, for a quality advisor? Do you think compensation method is top of the list? Is that one of the things? What, what are your thoughts on compensation and like searching for someone? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the first thing is reach out to the financial advisor be be cautious if the financial advisor is the first one to to reach out to you. I guess where I stand today, after having thought about this a lot, if I were a consumer looking to work with a financial advisor, I think the most important thing I would be looking at is compensation. Mm-hmm. I would want to know how they're getting paid because I I really do believe that compensation model is going to tell you more about the relationship that you're going to have with that advisor than any other thing. And again, the brief recap would be, you know, if you're working with the commission advisor, don't be surprised if there's an emphasis on products and transaction, you know, the, the need to place the product. Hey, you should purchase this because of these reasons. Mm-hmm. If you're working with a fee-based advisor, you know, again, don't be surprised because fee-based includes commissions. Let's remember that. The, the title's confusing. Fee-based still includes commissions. So that's still going to be a factor. Mm-hmm. What else would you say is good to look for if, you know, outside of uh, compensation? Yeah, I, I do think that someone having the CFP marks is key, as has been mentioned. I think it provides a minimum level of education and experience and a commitment to uh, some ethical standards. But other than that, you know, I, I, I really think that the you need to examine what you want as a consumer. You know, mm-hmm. what are you looking for in the advisor? Are are you a physician? You know, Daniel, I know that you you primarily work with physicians. And so it, I think it makes a lot of sense to work with a firm that knows a lot about the people about people like you. <laughs> you know, they've they've probably seen your situation a few times, which is super helpful. You know, if you go to a financial planning firm that's a generalist generalist firm, you you may find that there are certain things that they aren't aware of, especially in light of how many physicians have student loans and the complexities around those. It makes sense to have a, a advisor that knows a little bit about physicians and their student loan issues. But, but I guess a little bit further into this kind of tying back compensation again, though, you know, are you a do it yourselfer and you're just looking for someone to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's because you probably want to find like a project advisor or an hourly advisor. And if you're looking for more ongoing, an ongoing relationship where they're doing financial planning, you know, maybe like a monthly subscription model works, or if there's financial planning investment management, maybe a flat retainer that, you know, isn't going to increase or decrease based on the assets, but it's just like this, this flat fee. So it really, you know, it, you really got to, from a consumer standpoint, look at those things. But, you know, I think if you, if you are able to determine how they're paid, if you find them some with the minimum level of training experience, which would be the CFP is a good, you know, barometer for that. And then also finding a firm that uh, knows your issues because they're working with people like you. 
those are things that I think would be really helpful. What if somebody just has doesn't really know what what they want? They're not sure if they are can handle doing it themselves, or even if they want to do it themselves, or um, they're just they just have no idea. They don't know where to start. It's a good question. It seems like if you go online and you read, you know, financial planning blogs, in particular for physicians, it seems like there's this big push like, hey, you should do this on your own. You can do this on your own. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with doing it on your own. Just make sure that it's your your hobby, what you you know, what you really want to want to do, spend a lot of time on. I think there's a lot of people like that. If you find yourself not knowing if that's you or not, I still think it makes sense to to seek out the guidance of a financial advisor. I don't know, I don't know how your firm is set up, Daniel, but I suspect that if someone works with you, they're not really under any commitment for like how long they work with you or like there's I'm sure yeah. there's no fees if they decided to leave. Yeah, yeah they can bounce anytime. It's not Yeah, so you might find that hey, it makes sense it makes sense to work with someone. I don't know if I want ongoing help forever, but for the time being it makes sense. And so I think it still makes it, it I think in a you know, outsourcing this part of your life can uh create better clarity and give you more space to focus on things that you care about. If at a future mm-hmm. date you're like, man, I really want to do this on my own, then do it on your own. No problem. Yeah, I think that there's a kind of a DIY, I don't know if I would call it a movement, but a DIY emphasis. Uh, and I think part of that is our industry is to blame because, and I'm, when I say that there's, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about like the online world, like the, you know, financial blogs and that kind of thing. The financial world, our financial industry has not been very transparent and has very expensive hidden pricing. And so naturally, I think it's, or generally it's good advice to say, maybe you ought to not work with those kind of people and, and do it yourself. But in my experience, I think the majority of people could do it themselves, but it's more a matter of do they want to do it themselves. And most physicians, the nice thing about your pay structure is or your compensation level is you can choose to outsource whatever and still probably be ahead of the game. If you don't enjoy it, you might as well delegate. And that gives you more time to either work or spend time with your family or whatever you like doing. I agree. I, we don't we don't have unlimited time. And so, you know, we could I think I think most I agree with you. I think most people could figure out how to do this stuff on their own. As they could figure out how to change their car's oil or, you know, do all of their taxes on their own or, you know, do all all of their landscaping and everything and 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 there are things that, you know, my family has chosen to do because we like to do them. Mm-hmm. That I could hire out, but I'm not going to because we've just decided that these are things that we will do. But maybe there's a, you know, if you're reading, if you're reading some blogs, you might feel feeling like a little guilty maybe if you reach out and get help. But I don't think that you should. I think it's, yeah. I think it's really reasonable. And I think that, you know, I think a lot of people would benefit from being able to focus on those things that they derive greater satisfaction from instead of things that they really don't like. And some people aren't going to like this part of life and that's okay. There's people out there that can, they can help. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I, I come across people that are um, kind of like, I just want to hand the keys over and I, I want you to drive completely. And I don't even want to do anything. My opinion, I think that's not reasonable for most people either. First of all, cause we can't do everything. Like I'm not going to balance your checkbook. I'm not going to, you know, pay your bills and 
that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Like fully outsourcing? I, I don't know if it's possible to fully outsource. No, I don't. Think I mean, like you were saying, right? I mean, and you got to keep a pulse on your fine. I mean, you're gonna care about your money more than anybody. I think. I think that you could enter a danger zone there too, where you've just given everything to a third party, and yep. you really don't know what's going on. I mean, I think that I, I, you know, hopefully there's hopefully there's not that many people that are out there doing. I bet there are, but I just don't think it's reasonable. I I think that a good advisor. Make sure that you understand, you know, that they provide you some education for what's going on, uh, up to the level that you're comfortable with and that you want. But what a what a good financial advisor is doing, I think, is is providing meaningful service, things that you could do on your on your own with enough education and time and desire. But they're doing it instead. They're they're providing a meaningful service in that way, mm-hmm. and navigating the complexities of it too to provide you with greater clarity. Um, but yeah, I don't think that clients should just say, Hey, you take care of it and you know, we'll meet every year and I don't want to hear about it other than, other than that. A good advisor yeah. should educate them a little bit. Yeah. I think that's the middle ground. The ideal middle ground is kind of a combination of the two in my experience as well. So as we wrap up here, what, what are your thoughts on like the future of our industry? What, if you could paint the picture of like the ideal financial advice industry, what, what would it look like in your opinion? Yeah. I think. It would be a really good step forward if our industry did some regulation of the title financial advisor. I'm not necessarily opposed uh, to people working with someone who sells products and earns a commission so long as the consumer clearly understands that that's the dynamic of the relationship. Mm -hmm. The, The problem that I see is that because we all call ourselves financial advisors, the consumer doesn't really have a good way of navigating who provides what function. And so I'm a financial advisor. I have a flat fee only financial planning practice. My clients, my only compensation comes from a quarterly fee. I'm a financial advisor. You know, in my, within my city where, where I live, there are various financial planning organizations that are product manufacturers that are using financial advisors to sell the product. Mm. And so if we could regulate that title, I think that would be a really great step. I also don't think that we are quite, in fact, we are clearly not at the same level of professional respectability as medicine, law, and accounting, and, and other professions. And one of the reasons is because we don't have a very robust education structure at the universities. You know, the CFP is great and there are plenty of programs now that are providing uh, coursework, undergraduate and graduate coursework that prepares you to sit for the certified financial planning exam. That's a, a, a level of rigor that comes from a college classroom. But in a lot of ways, you know, the CFP is, you know, I, I did like some mail order stuff at the American college, you know, that I don't think provide me with that same level of discipline that people get in at the university. And so if we want to get to that level, we need to, we need to provide more education for our advisors as they're coming in. And, um, I guess, you know, I'm not sure if that's entirely interesting to those who are listening, but I think the point would be to make sure that your, your financial advisors educated, Yeah, make sure they know what they're talking about. That's the problem right now is you can find that completely right now. There's plenty of guys and gals that are doing it the right way and um, have 
they're they have strong educational backgrounds and that sort of thing. The, it just puts it on the consumer completely to sort through the confusing titles and compensation methodologies and all this fee based fee only commission. I mean, it's confusing stuff. <sighs> and so it's all on the consumer. And so I think, uh, I could, could not agree with you more. A little bit of yeah. title clarity would go a long way. Like let's would. call ourselves sales people versus advisor. That's a, that's a good start. It would be sort out that. And then, yeah, that's, that's, that's good stuff, man. Well, I appreciate you joining me. How can people find more information about you? Yeah, probably the best way to learn a little bit more about me and my philosophy and my firm is just to go to www.skyviewplanning.com. And so I've I've got a like I, I mentioned earlier, I've got a flat fee, flat fee only financial planning practice that serves physicians. Yep. Awesome. Well great talking with you as always and um we'll I'm sure be talking soon. Looking forward to it. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also, check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors. Thank you.